America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the United Kingdom, a long-standing ally of the United States. Our guest, Lord Mark Sedwill, served as the UK's National Security Advisor from 2017 to 2020 and Cabinet Security Head of the Home Civil Service from 2018 to 2020 under Prime Ministers Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Lord Sedwell previously served as the UK ambassador to Afghanistan, NATO's senior civilian representative in Afghanistan, special representative on Afghanistan and Pakistan, and permanent secretary at the Home Office. The Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1922 established the modern United Kingdom, which is both a constitutional monarchy and parliamentary democracy, comprising the independent countries of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Key elements of its rich history and culture include laying the foundation for modern Western education and signing of the Magna Carta in 1215, which established the precedent for rule of law, democratic governance, and individual rights in Western society. Britain's relationship with North America started in 1607, with the arrival of the first permanent English colonists at Jamestown, Virginia. More English colonists arrived to settle what would become the 13 colonies along the eastern seaboard. France and Spain made often competing claims to control large swaths of the resource-rich Americas. Those New World settlements intensified Old World economic and strategic competitions, and in 1756, England declared war on France— to start the Seven Years' War. The conflict spanned the globe. Spain joined the fight in the New World, while Prussia waged war against Austria, France, Russia, and Sweden in Europe. Britain prevailed and extended its influence in North American territories previously claimed by France and Spain. But the cost of that war set the stage for the American Revolution. American colonists saw British attempts to raise revenue through taxation as an infringement on their freedom. The War of Independence began in 1775. Over six violent years, more American soldiers died as a percentage of the population than in any other of the nation's wars. The Continental Army and their French allies won independence at Yorktown in 1781 and Britain signed the Treaty of Paris to officially end the war two years later. But U.S.-British relations remained contentious, as the two nations clashed in the War of 1812. During the American Civil War, many of the British elite privately supported and funded the rebellious Confederate states, despite an official proclamation of British neutrality in 1861. Significant tensions persisted in the wake of the Civil War, 
but the two nations of shared language, culture, and traditions grew close after mutual sacrifice in the bloody world wars of the 20th century. What is now known as the special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom grew stronger as the nations worked together to create liberal democratic world order in the wake of World War II and overcome the challenge of communist totalitarianism during the nearly five decades of Cold War with the Soviet Union. After the mass murder attacks of September 11, 2001, the United Kingdom joined other NATO allies in invoking the Collective Defense Clause of the Alliance, joining in the invasion of Afghanistan and the long war that followed to ensure that jihadist terrorists never again enjoyed a safe haven and support base there. British and American forces fought together in Iraq from 2003 to 2011 and continued to sustain counterterrorism efforts in Afghanistan and Syria. The relationship has not been immune to differences, as evidenced by the Suez Crisis of 1956. But the special relationship has proved durable as the country's leaders continue to work closely on security, economic growth, climate change, and human rights. We welcome Lord Sedwill as the UK sustains commitments to security in South Asia and the Middle East, navigates the implications of Britain's exit from the European Union, contends with revisionist powers China and Russia, and begins its recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Lord Mark Sedwell, welcome to Battlegrounds. Hey, let me begin by saying what a pleasure it's been to work with you over the years in Afghanistan for a couple of years, uh, and then quite unexpectedly, we're both national security advisors. Welcome to Battlegrounds, and thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Charles, great to be with you, and thank you for the opportunity to, to, to talk over some of the issues that interest us both. Mark, the first thing I'd like to talk with you about is, is Russia. I, I recall the, the last you know, few weeks that I had in the White House, we're dealing with the attempted murder of Sergei uh, Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury. And we put together, I think, a really strong response to that under the theory based in, in your words. I remember at the time you said, hey, we have to impose costs on the Kremlin beyond those that they factor in at the beginning of their decisions to conduct this kind of an attack on us. And so I wonder if you'd share your thoughts on the competition with Putin's Russia these days, uh, especially in the wake of the uh, of the of the poisoning of uh, of Putin's primary rival, uh, Mr. Navalny. And uh, and, and what, what do you think we, we should do uh, to cope with Putin's playbook and the way that he's engaged in this sustained campaign uh, of political subversion and, and what some people have called Russian new generation warfare against us? Well, thanks, HR. Um, I, I remember it well, and thank you for being such a great ally in that period. We couldn't have imposed that cost without you being absolutely pivotal in the US administration and ensuring that uh, the Western alliance stood together uh, in dealing with the, the Skripal affair. And I think that was really, it was a really important example of the world we're now in. Uh, that demonstrated, that poisoning demonstrated that the, the old rules that we had all assumed that state-to-state -state competition would be operated by could no longer be counted upon. Um, I don't quite reach back to the Cold War. Thank you for saying I was a veteran of the Cold War. I'm not that old. Uh, but I did start just after it. <laughs> well, you're much younger so, than me. You're much younger <laughs> than me, Mark. This is what it I don't was. think Why? I am. <laughs> um, uh, I did start just after it. 
And of course, that Cold War uh, mentality absolutely affected um, our, our worldview, including in the, in the period afterwards. And what the Screpon poisoning did was demonstrate that we could no longer count on the understandings, if you like, the rules that we, that we had applied both during the Cold War and afterwards. And we saw that again with, uh, with uh, uh, Navalny, uh, the Navalny poisoning subsequently, and then just the misuse of the Russian state machine to uh, now uh, put him in prison. Uh, the other thing we've seen with Russia is that uh, more strategically, they have a thing called the Continuum Doctrine, and they are operating across all of the domains, the traditional domains of land, sea and air, where they know that they are outmatched. Of course, they have some sophisticated weapons, but in the end, they are badly outmatched in those traditional military domains of land, sea and air. But they are now operating in three new domains, space, cyberspace and the information space. And although I mean, this, this, uh, this solar winds hack, you know, here in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And there they've demonstrated. And I think this is a striking part of the of the Putin playbook, that even if you don't have um, the 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 greatest uh, force overall and you know, their cyber capabilities are no greater than theirs, their space capabilities certainly aren't, even their information capabilities aren't. But if you are willing to um, uh, get their firstest with the mostest, as one of your famous civil war generals said, and apply uh, what capabilities you have ruthlessly and opportunistically, and he's a very skillful user. Of these and unscrupulously. Then you, yeah, and unscrupulously. <laughs> then you can have a real effect. And so I think we've seen that with um, attempting to undermine our democratic systems, uh, as you say, cyber attacks, both to steal information, but also to position themselves to potentially uh, disrupt. Um, uh, and of course, the development of new weapons in the uh, in the traditional uh, uh, areas. And if you have a regime that's willing to do that and also uses non-state actors as proxies, whether criminal groups or, or others, then that inevitably presents a significant challenge for democratic regimes that build, believe in the rule of law and apply it um, to, um, uh, to deal with. But of course, what we've got to remember is the oldest lessons of all in uh, the art of war uh, from Sun Tzu, choose the ground on which to fight. So the fact they choose areas on which to uh, attack us does not mean, as we did, as we as we applied over the Skripal affair, that we have to retaliate in kind. We find an area where they're vulnerable and we're strong and um, impose costs that way. So, you know, I, I think this really applies to this competition in cyberspace in particular, right? That the, the, the response is not just only in cyberspace to solar winds and and to the Russian uh, cyber enabled information warfare against us. Uh, I think we have to integrate all elements of our national power and efforts of like minded partners to restore a degree of deterrence. And you know, I, I remember Mark, the first thing that uh, that you would used to stress is we have to attribute it. We have to make sure that there are no doubts about it. I mean, you used to, you used to call what Russia does implausible deniability, right? Is that, you know, it's, it's, it's clear that Putin is guilty of, of murder, attempted murder, but he gets away with it. He says, oh, that, that wasn't us. We, we, we didn't do that. So, but, but beyond really, you know, <laughs> making sure that we can attribute it, we don't provide cover. Like I think former president Trump often did sadly, you know, in, in terms of his reluctance to call Putin out for his behavior, what more can we do at this stage, right? We've we've been through a, a cycle now, Mark, where we thought, you know, we had worked together well in the response to, to the Skripal poisoning to restore a degree of deterrence. You might recall that that around that same time is when is when U.S. special forces and our partner forces 
killed you know almost 300 Russian mercenaries in Syria, right? It was it was quite serious at the time. The degree to which Russia was 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 challenging us and was subverting us uh, in, in any way that they could, not only in cyberspace but physically as well. What what more can we do, Mark, uh, to to restore deterrence against Putin and to uh, to, to make sure that we, we we prevent the worst case, right, which would be an escalation to a disastrous war. Well, I think um, I think there's a couple of things. One one is we need to do as we did in the Skripal case, and that is accept we're operating in an era where uncertainty is high, and where implausible denials will um, be part of the playbook on the other side. And as you'll recall, some of our allies were saying, "Why do you want to go so fast?" Uh, why can't you wait till the investigation's in? Well, can you be absolutely sure? And we just punched through that because we recognised that, as so often in conflict, speed is uh, it, speed is of the essence. Otherwise, frankly, attention wanders and the initial impact dissipates. And so we had to operate at uh, at risk. And what that meant was we had to bring together um, our uh, intelligence capabilities with our diplomatic and uh, law enforcement campaign, and uh, all of those, all of those, all of those um, came together at pace. And traditionally, um, particularly the intelligence capabilities, don't break out into the open. And we had to declassify material and say, right, no, look, here is the evidence that we can uh, use to demonstrate. We applied investigative techniques we'd been using to deal with terrorist attacks in order to track down and identify the two, uh, the two culprits. And of course, we then had. Um, uh, media uh, operations, including Balakat and so on, independent media operations, yeah. who actually, unprompted by us, got onto the story and helped identify them and called out the lies that we were being told by the Russians. But I do think, you know, although in that case we were able to take diplomatic action uh, and some law enforcement action, including, um, for example, dealing with some of the criminal um, and corrupt funds uh, that flow out of Russia into our financial sectors. Um, uh, we have to be ready to respond in kind if there's a more uh, a more violent attack. And that's why, for example, uh, almost in parallel, the military action we took in Syria after the use of chemical weapons on the battlefield in Syria in order to restore deterrence there wasn't just about that. It was in demonstrating to Russia and other hostile states that um, the will to use force, the will to protect our values and interests um, was... Uh, restored, had been restored in the West, and that they shouldn't count on being able to outmaneuver us uh, by being more aggressive. And so all of these things need to come together. We need to, we need to look at every different um, theatre of competition, let alone of conflict, and remember that they are connected in the minds of our adversaries, even if we tend to see them as separate. You know, Mark, a point that you made at the beginning is that your Russia knows that they can't compete with us you know, on our own terms, right? I mean, their, their economy is the size of Italy's or Texas's economy. And so I think Putin, what he really thinks, his theory of victory is dragging everybody else down. You know, so he's kind of the last man standing. And yeah. you see this, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of philosophy play out, as, as you mentioned, in, in operations really short of war, where he tries to accomplish his objectives below the threshold of what, what might elicit a concerted response from us. But also, he has this really disturbing doctrine now, nu a nuclear doctrine of, uh, of of escalation domination, right? And and so 
you know, uh, as we confront the, the, a really dangerous Russia, we don't want to count them out, right, because of the problems they've had with COVID or the collapse of oil prices and the stagnant economy. I mean, I, I mean, I think it is a dangerous situation. Uh, but, you know, Mark, when we when we were working together on this, our European allies, you know, their their response was kind of underwhelming. So so what, what more do you think we need to do uh, in within NATO? Right. But but the, but within the transatlantic alliance and, and relationship, the U.S. relationship with the EU, what more can we do to cope with with, with Putin's playbook uh, and ensure you know, peace and security? But but also convince, you know, convince the Kremlin to stop this, this destructive activity, whether it's, you know, the poisoning of Volney or what's going on in Belarus or the sustained campaign of, you know, of cyber enabled you know, information warfare against us. I think there's two or three things, HR, and, and um, I'll touch on them briefly. First, I think we need to recognize that national security in the modern era is a more complex um, uh, 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 arena than it was when you and I started out. So national security 1.0 was the defense of the realm, and 2.0 added homeland security and counterterrorism to that. 3.0 includes economic security, environmental security, health security, human security, um, and so on as well. And we have to remember that our adversaries will try to exploit their advantages and our vulnerabilities across all of those uh, all of those areas in competition, as you say, well below, in some cases, well below the threshold of armed conflict. I think second, in the in the transatlantic relationship, one of the things we should, should um, acknowledge is that it was a, a significant set, success for the Trump administration was in getting the Europeans to start to increase their defence expenditure and take seriously the commitment they'd all made uh, back in Wales in 2014 to uh, uh, invest 2% of their national income in defence. And that was essentially just an aspiration, but it took some of the, some of the pressure from the president himself uh, uh, to, to get some of the Europeans to start to take that uh, more seriously. And unfortunately, that came, as you may also remember, almost one of the first things you and I uh, dealt with was the um, uh, potential weakening of the commitment to Article 5. Um, the the commitment to common defence of uh, 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 any NATO uh, any NATO ally I think was the first uh, bit of turbulence in the relationship that you and I dealt with after you became yeah uh, I mean, so, someday Security someday I'll tell you a few stories about that but exactly well, yeah. well right. indeed but actually so so as a lot but but I think that's that that's the other um, piece of getting the Europeans to actually do more on defence is to really make sure that the Russians know that in the end, the insurance policy of Article 5 uh, remains uh, intact. And that commitment, notably to our smallest allies right on the eastern uh, boundary of NATO, the Baltic nations and so on, um, is um, uh, absolutely solid. And that's why the enhanced forward presence and so on there uh, as a tripwire is important. I think there's another point, though. This is something the US and the UK have often um, struggled with somewhat. Um, it's when our European allies talk through the mechanism of the European Union of developing more collective defence capability um, through that uh, forum. And we were, when we were members of the EU, were always reluctant uh, to see that. We were concerned it would undermine their commitment to NATO and so on. I think actually the bigger risk is lack of capability. I think we can manage the institutional yeah. arrangements. And, and the bigger risk is lack of capability and lack of integrated capability. The 21 EU members who are also members of NATO... Uh, provide over 90% of the 
of the EU's defence capability, uh, but only about even two thirds of Europe's uh, capability, European NATO's capability, let alone if you include the American commitment, it's a much smaller proportion. And so what we need is for them to actually do more in terms of integrating capability, buy fewer systems, buy the same systems, make sure they're interoperable, properly integrated, so that they are more capable allies. And that is good for us. I think it helps maintain American political commitment to the alliance to see that the Europeans are stepping up and taking more responsibility for their own security. And it's also an important signal to the Russians uh, or indeed any, any adversary who may be operating in our uh, in our um, uh, uh, hemisphere, that um, that Europe is serious about uh, defence and security. And as I say, I think the the questions of the institutional relationship between NATO and the EU, the institutional relationships between the US, the UK, the EU, and so on, these are things that diplomatic experts can figure out. The key thing is we have enough capability in this continent to provide a significant um, uh, deterrent to Russian misbehaviour, and that's going to have to extend. Uh, beyond the immediate continent, for example, into the high north, um, and be capable of being deployed, as we know elsewhere. Because, um, as we, as you and I know from the, the the experiences we had in Iraq and Afghanistan, if you don't go and sort out trouble somewhere else, it will come to you. Uh, and uh, NATO needs to retain that expeditionary capability, even though expeditionary campaigns are somewhat out of fashion. Well, or, or is my favorite, uh, my favorite English philosopher. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, you know, <laughs> uh, war may not be the best way of settling differences, but it may be the only way to make sure that they're not settled for you. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Mark, can I, just, can I just talk a little bit more about Europe before? I want to talk with you about Afghanistan, where we first met and and our long sure. relationship with that country and, and the long struggle there. But on, on Europe, just quickly, this talk of strategic autonomy, right, in Europe and it, to me, it, it's a bit offensive. It's, it's just as a, I think offensive as maybe Donald Trump was to some of the Europeans, because what it does is it suggests kind of a, a moral equivalency in the competition with Russia, but especially China. So we're in this competition now with the Chinese Communist Party, which has been even more aggressive since the pandemic that they foisted on the world, right? And and uh, and 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 Europe is is trying to push through this comprehensive agreement on investment. They seem kind of kind of weak, you know, in this competition between between a, a, us in in the, our free and open societies and and China, which is which is advancing this, you know, this mercantilist authoritarian model. Um, are you concerned about Europe going kind of weak need here in, in, in terms of uh, the transatlantic relationship and our need to work together in some of these competitions? I think it's really important for the reasons you say, HR, that strategic autonomy, which in the end is a you know, perfectly um, uh, 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 sensible um, uh, policy of trying to build up capability, the freedom of action of, of sovereign nations and so on, just as in a sense, we decided we wanted more strategic autonomy for ourselves through the Brexit uh, process. That is fine, as long as we remember that, and, and our European partners remember, that there is no moral equivalence between Western nations, democratic uh, uh, systems, and uh, authoritarian regimes, even authoritarian state capitalist regimes, however strong uh, and powerful. And in the end, our alignment of interests with each other within the community of democratic nations, particularly advanced 
uh, economic democratic nations far outweighs any of the differences that we may have, um, and we must stand uh, together. On the point about the strategic um, uh, question of, of China, um, uh, my own view, and I, but I think this this is um, uh, uh, probably the the view of the two prime ministers I served, although they would use their own uh, ways of putting it, is that um, we can't simply revert to an updated version of the Cold War. Cold War 2.0 isn't the right approach to China, uh, not least because economically it's so much bigger and uh, more embedded with our economies, but also because the, some of the really big challenges facing the planet as a whole, the environmental challenges, climate change, um, biodiversity, um, health security and so on. China has to be involved. We have, you know, they have to be cooperatively involved in tackling some of those challenges. And so we need an approach that balances across the relationship with China um, uh, uh, our various interests. So there are areas like the environment in which we should cooperate. There are areas that we must contest and confront and contain, their human rights record, their aggressive behavior in the South China Sea, uh, action in Hong Kong, threats to Taiwan, you know, et cetera. Um, and there are areas we, we should uh, compete uh, and recognize we're in a strategic competition, whether that's their uh, aim to build influence through the Belt and Road Initiative, or indeed in the economic sphere, ensuring that fair competition is truly fair, and that our companies have the same access to their markets and can compete on a level playing field with theirs as they do uh, as they do to ours. I mean, and that's a, and that, that means a, a different uh, model to the one that we've allowed to develop um, yeah, over the past 25 years. But it does, mean, it does mean a really strategic approach to China. And the final point I make on that, sorry, before, before just um, moving the conversation on, is in particular in this area of the areas where we really must contest, confront, contain. It's, it's critically important that we stand together. We've seen what happens when one ally, Australia, steps out on their own and they get um, they get a, a, a pasting um, from China, but because all they got from the rest of us was a bit of rhetorical solidarity, but nothing, nothing um, substantive. And I think there is a question about whether um, we need a sort of economic Article Five, if you like, among no. allies, whereby we say if any of us is um, uh, under pressure, then we will all stand together. Because in doing so then we can't, you know, the option of divide and rule to our adversaries or our competitors does not uh, exist. And that's, that, that restoration of common purpose among the democratic nations is, I hope, um, one, of the, one of the priorities for uh, the next few years and, uh, 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 of, the new, uh, of the new US administration. You know, I, I think that's such an important point, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you from California, but I think we ought to all start drinking, you know, Australian wine, you know, for example. But we need, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Mark, we, we really do need to, to work together on this because what China will do is they, they'll, they'll employ this, this, uh, this strategy of co-option, right? Co-opt you in like they did with Australia, made Australia dependent on the economic relationship with China and then use that relationship for coercion. So it's co-option, coercion, and then they conceal their most egregious acts. It's just like, this is just normal business practices. So I think that we, we can't allow them to take this divide and conquer approach. You're so right about that. And uh, and, and I hope that this is top on the agenda uh, for the, the U.S. you know tr transatlantic agenda and, and with the U.S., EU, and U.K. relationship. All, you're right. All, all the words are, are, are aligned. 
And now we just need actions, I think, because we're trying to do it as we're trying to kill one to scare a hundred, right? With with Australia. You know, so Mark, we first met in Afghanistan. And I'll tell you, I love the country, I love the people. I wish more Americans, I wish more more British citizens knew the people of Afghanistan. I mean, oddly, I think it, it is it is our launched our longest war. Uh, even longer than than our War of Independence, Mark, and and, uh, and you know it's it, it's a war that is probably maybe the least understood, right? I mean, it's in this digital age, I think it's the most underreported war maybe in history, and and I just saw a letter from the U.S. Secretary of State today to the Afghan government saying, hey, you know, get with the program on this peace agreement with the Taliban, a peace agreement right, that is essentially. Uh, based on a fantasy, a fantasy that that the Taliban is going to become like more you know benevolent, maybe uh, and 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 humane, a, a peace agreement that's based on an assumption that there's a bold line between the Taliban and the jihadist terrorist groups who want to who, who want to commit mass murder again on the scale of 9/11, which is the reason why we're in Afghanistan. And so you know you you were the NATO senior civilian representative when when we first met. You were the the UK ambassador. Hey, you know, Mark, I, I th- look at this war. And I think, hey, it's not a twenty-year-old war. It's a, it's a one-year war. You know, twenty times over, right? What, what I would just love for you to expect, maybe explain to our viewers how you see this war, and and how you view this latest these latest developments, the peace agreement, and then maybe most importantly for our viewers, okay, what can we do, right? What what, what should we endeavor to achieve, and how could we do it at a cost that's acceptable? you know, to, to British citizens and to U.S. citizens? Well, I think um, we could spend the whole uh, of our time together talking about this because, like you, I, I retain you know, a, 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 a sort of passionate connection and great affection for uh, Afghanistan. And and um, uh, it, it's affected me. I've served in many countries around the world, but it's it's affected me emotionally more than any other place that I've, I've, I've been. And, and I've always felt a you know, connection to it. Um, uh, ever since. I think your point about one war fought 20 times is correct. And one of the reasons for that is that we didn't recognize at the beginning of this, that this was going to be a long campaign. Because of the success of the initial effort to expel the Taliban from government after 9-11, chase Al-Qaeda out of town and all the rest of it, uh, I think there was a complacency quickly grew up that somehow or other that was the problem solved. And of course, the underlying tensions within Afghanistan itself and within that neighborhood, because Afghanistan is probably the most fought over uh, territory in the world and the most meddled in by its neighbors um, in, uh, uh, in, in the world, that, that those problems were resolved with the expulsion of the Taliban. And of course they weren't. Um, they weren't within Afghanistan and they weren't between Afghanistan and its neighbors. And the neighborhood rivalries that play out in Afghanistan weren't uh, resolved either. And so we had a series of commanders, ambassadors, and so on, who came and went, and each felt that they somehow or other were going to be, it was going to be the decisive moment in the campaign. And how many wars over the past several centuries um, have we seen that mistake made? Well, Well, yeah, right. right. There are are no short-term solutions to long-term problems, right? Exactly. And if you look within Afghanistan itself, um, I mean, of course, uh, uh, the Taliban government was an appalling uh, regime responsible for some of the worst brutalities that that any of us have seen in our in our lifetimes, but it's also important to understand what sat behind that. 
that within the Pashtun community, 40% plus of the Afghan population, it's a multi-ethnic, a very complex multi-ethnic country, of course. I remember, HR, one of the things I used to do when we were in Afghanistan, when I was doing a briefing, was showed uh, a map of the ethnicities, but with the political borders taken off. And then I'd hand somebody one of those laser points and say, right, show me the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan and uh, and Afghanistan and Iran. Of course, right. I mean, right, right, two-thirds two two of the Pashtun population is in Pakistan. Uh, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you, and as soon as you do that, you understand the real, the real politics. But even within the Pashtuns, there were two tribal federations, the Giljais and the Durranis. And the tribal federation that essentially came to power after 9-11, led by President Karzai and, and associated with the royal family and so on, were the Durranis. And the Gilzais, um, uh, with whom the Taliban had been associated, um, felt that they had no uh, connection to the government. And so in those parts so, of so Afghanistan... So the Gil, Gilzais, we should say for our viewers, are kind of the highland Pashtuns in the eastern yeah. part. The, you know, the, the Durranis are the lowland Pashtuns. You know, in right. kind of the southwestern, you know, south uh, eastern part of the of the of the, uh, of the country. So, without you know, doing a PhD thesis on the tribes of Afghanistan, <laughs> the basic point here was that the tribal group from whom the Taliban um, drew their strength um, uh, were essentially excluded from power. That created resentment that the Taliban exploited to get themselves back in the game about three to five years after uh, 9/11. And essentially, we've been dealing with that problem. Since. So an awful lot of this is not about the ideology of the Taliban. It's about the tribal rivalries within uh, Afghanistan yeah. and some a of the struggle, a struggle for power, a struggle for yeah. power. And some of the actions of the of the coalition um, uh, uh, made made elements of that worse because we found ourselves without meaning to, intervening in those tribal politics, favoring one over another, um, you know, empowering one warlord against another and then essentially driving some of the some of the frictions so so you know, actually one of the lessons of this uh, is to go right the way back to the Powell doctrine Colin Powell's doctrine um, over the first Gulf War and recognize that if you're going to carry out a military intervention you need an exit strategy um, you need very clear objectives and you need to recognize it's going to take longer and require more resources than you planned and he was right about that, and he and it was right. You know, we should have applied that in Afghanistan. Yeah. As for now, there will have to be a political settlement. We can't uh, of some kind because the Taliban are too dug into certain parts of Afghan tribal um, uh, politics and society to be simply you know, completely ignored. And they've you know, they've shown that they are a a factor that can um, that can uh, uh, keep the keep the conflict uh, going. But that doesn't, of course, mean handing them the keys to the kingdom um, or indeed recognizing them as a uh, legitimate um, uh, uh, equal of the Afghan, uh, the Afghan government. Uh, as, as we said, they are, they're, they're dug in in essentially one part of the Pashtun community of Afghanistan. But there are other communities, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, etc., Mark, this is this is what upsets me the most, right? Is that is that we we have empowered the Taliban in these negotiations with the Afghan government, right? We you know, the way this peace agreement was structured, we essentially forced the Afghan government to release five thousand of the most heinous people on earth. We we backed off on any kind of a demand on a ceasefire before the agreement. So the Taliban is committing mass murder attacks. Uh, and, and and ratcheting up the violence in the midst of these 
conversations they're having with Afghan government officials. And, you know, they're, they're sitting across the table from them saying, hey, listen, you know, why are we even talking to you? We just defeated the world's greatest superpower. So I'm sorry, I, I, want to, I want our viewers to hear your full perspective on this, but I just wanted to interject that, that you, your point is so important. If you're going to leave, right, leave, but don't empower your enemy on the way out. So I, so I agree with that, that uh, the, probably the most important thing that uh, the United States and uh, uh, U.S. allies in Afghanistan can do is to um, demonstrate that we remain committed to Afghanistan for the long term. Yeah. If, if the story is of withdrawal, then the old phrase, you have the watches, we have the time, will apply, and they'll simply wait us out and then fight this out among Afghans themselves, and you know, who knows how that will end up. Actually, I think we underestimate the resilience of the Afghan state. I don't think it would yes. be a replay yeah. of the early 90s, but right. clearly the Taliban you know, would be able to cause mayhem for a very and, long and hey, time. Hey, Mark, Mark, I just want to say we underestimate our own resilience as well, I think, because we don't explain the stakes. And I would just point out to our viewers in the United States you know, who are skeptical about NATO and burden sharing, there are more European troops in Afghanistan right now than there are Americans, right? And so I, I, I just feel this is a sustainable you know, commitment over time if we would be resolved to do it. But Mark, I know people, you know, what people say to me all the time is, okay, well, okay, how does it end up? You know, then, then you know, what, what, is, what is the end state? You know, what can we achieve in Afghanistan? What are your thoughts on that? How you, would you explain that to the American people, you know, the, your, your fellow British citizens? Okay, hey, it's, th this is what we can achieve and this is why it's worth it. Well, first, I don't think an enduring commitment requires us to put troops back onto the ground in Afghan villages fighting the way they were when you and I were there. That, that part of this war is over and were we to do that, we'd probably create more problems than we would solve. Mm -hmm. What we have to do, though, is stand behind the Afghans, um, continue to provide them with the capability to upgrade their own forces so they remain um, uh, strong enough to be able to uh, resist the pressure um, and ensure we're underwriting the economic position of the Afghan state. And then we need to use all of our diplomatic um, uh, uh, authority to essentially um, get the neighbours to stop playing out their rivalries within yeah. Afghanistan right. itself. That's one of the, those are the crucial things I think we can do. The paradox of Afghanistan is that every time we said we were we we wanted to get out and we'd lost patience, we prolonged the the war and prolonged our involvement and our commitment. Yeah. If if we'd said we were there for the long term, we were there for at least a decade or more back in 2010, 2011, we'd probably be done by now. Absolutely. Because they wouldn't have been yes. able to sustain it. But you know, we yeah. lost allies from the coalition in 2010, 2011. We had the surge, but we put, a, put an end point on it. And so at each stage, we've encouraged the Taliban to believe all they have to do is stay in the fight for a bit longer uh, and, and it will go their way. So saying that is not going to happen. We're not going to allow that to happen. And we're going to stay here until, um, until Afghanistan is back. Uh, and settled is the best way of actually bringing this to a faster conclusion because it's at that point the Taliban will realize they have to consider, they have to negotiate ser uh, seriously, you know, they have to be willing to uh, uh, engage in ceasefires, um, uh, and they have to stop uh, uh, believing that somehow or other they can uh, ride over the whole of the rest of Afghanistan 
uh, once uh, once again. And then the Afghans themselves will work out their own political settlement. That isn't for us to do. They can figure Absolutely. that out. They're strong enough and capable enough to do so. We sh- but what we need to do is provide the insurance policy that says uh, we will underwrite this um, and and uh, uh, and ensure that a Taliban takeover uh, is not available either now or in the future. You know, the sad thing is, I think we had that strategy in place in 2017 for the first time, right? So, so we have this de facto long-term commitment in Afghanistan, but we we give away all of the benefits of a long-term commitment by saying, "Hey, we're leaving." We keep saying, "We're leaving, we're leaving, we're leaving." You know, and you mentioned you mentioned the uh, the neighbors in in South Asia. Can we talk about Pakistan for a little bit, Marcus? So you were you you were posted in, in Pakistan, you know, soon after 9/11. And I think it's immensely important that Pakistan play a less destructive role in, in the region and internationally. You know, I, I, I look at our diplomatic engagement toward Pakistan over the years. I think it's characterized by serial gullibility. And the Pakistanis say, hey, you're going to be the person that convinces us to, to, to reduce our support for jihadist terrorist organizations or to support our, our you know, to reduce our support for the Taliban and so forth. You know, of course, Pakistan is it's a nuclear armed country. It's in a it's in a regional rivalry with 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 India in a way that is extremely dangerous. How do you see Pakistan within the broader construct of, of South Asia? And, and what can we do to encourage Pakistan to play a least destructive role in the region and to maybe reduce you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the chances of, of what we know would be a devastating war? Uh, for example, between yeah, between uh, between Pakistan and, and India. Well, that, that of course is the the biggest strategic issue in that region. And I've been through a couple of crises, including when I was in Pakistan, um, where um, the the prospects of um, incidents around the line of control, the um, the disputed uh, border for your viewers between uh, India and Pakistan up in Kashmir. The, uh, the line of control in instance there threatened to escalate into uh, full-scale war, which could, of course, in the end, have gone uh, nuclear. And I remember you know, earlier on, a few years before that, um, uh, exactly the same problem had happened again after a, after a series of uh, a series of incidents. So that's and, 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 the, and the and the US and UK worked very closely together there. I remember uh, Deputy and Secretary we... of State Dick Armitage traveled to the region, delivered a ultimatum yeah. essentially to the Pakistanis. Yeah. Well, we had a series of visits, uh, uh, Secretary Powell, uh, the Foreign Secretary here, Jack Straw, Joschka Fischer, uh, the German Foreign Minister, all went through a period, each of them essentially using their next visit as a, as a means of trying to diffuse some of the tension. And it was a good, that was a good uh, uh, example of how multilateral di- diplomatic effort can really um, help countries walk back from the brink when they can't do so, uh, when they can't do so on their own. I think the thing that... Um, uh, defines the uh, the Pakistani army's um, worldview, and of course they're dominant in these uh, areas. Is the sense of insecurity? You know, one of the odd things about that region is each country is essentially fearful of a more powerful neighbour to their east. So Afghanistan uh, fears um, Pakistan, Pakistan fears India, India fears China, and of course they all then look to their west and see the influence of their main adversary there. So Pakistan fears India, sees the hand of India in Afghanistan. You know, India fears China, sees China's influence in Pakistan. And so there, you know, 
I mean, of course, in the end, resolving all of these tensions in a grand regional bargain would be the best answer. But those those things take uh, take time. I think with Pakistan in particular, it is in it, it is in reducing their sense of their genuine sense of insecurity, the need for what they would see as asymmetric capabilities in order to offset the uh, the threats uh, that they face. But in Afghanistan in particular, I think the thing that that we've always failed to convince the, the Pakistani military of is the, the risks they're running to the security of Pakistan by allowing essentially this pool of terrorism and extremism to dominate the Pashtun belt, which, as you said, two thirds of which is in Pakistan itself. And they have their own Taliban problem um, operating uh, uh, from that area into the rest of uh, Pakistan. And I think, you know, I think they've, they've, um, uh, 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 underestimated the degree to which that threatens the security of the Pakistani state. You know, you know, can we talk a little bit more about India? So, India is is a country that the world needs to succeed. Right? I mean, it's it's important, as you mentioned, the competition with China and China's now you know exportation of its authoritarian mercantilist model. We've seen now Chinese you know troops bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier. It's a country that's important to security and stability within South Asia. But if you look even more broadly in, in the issues of uh, you know, food and water and energy security and climate change, and I mean, it, you know, any small problem in India is a big problem for the world, just based on scale. What, what more do you think we should do, Mark, uh, with, with the U.S., uh, U.K., with Europe uh, to help India succeed? And, and to and to you know to, not only from a security perspective, but on all these other issues, as you mentioned at the outset, you know are are are, are intertwined uh, with our security these days. Well, India, for the reasons you say, HR is important in its own right. Huge country, within you know, a, a couple of decades, will actually be the largest country by population in the world. Its country will its population growth rate will is exceeding China's and will become the largest country in the world. So it's just critically important in its own right um, for security, the future of the global environment, um, and of course, increasingly for the world economy. It's already one of the top half dozen economies uh, in the world. Uh, but it's also important, as you say, uh, because of the example it uh, presents um, in the international community. Through the Cold War, India was a leading nation in the non-aligned movement, it essentially was developed. Uh, by Nehru, and there are many countries that look to India, particularly in the developing world, as the natural uh, leader, disinclined to align with one of the superpowers, whether those superpowers are, um, particularly between the, the United States and the Soviet Union, different, of course, in their relationship with China, and determined to pursue an independent position. So I think we should recognise that India um, uh, 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 will always have, and should always have, a leadership role in the world. I think um, you say, how do we help India succeed? I think it's important to recognize India is a great success. Um, it's the world's largest democracy. They run elections on a scale that are unimaginable um, to uh, the rest of us in a country where rates of literacy are low, where, where rates of poverty are still very high, and they still manage to, uh, to, to do it every uh, few years without, without any disruption um, throughout the history of uh, independent uh, India. And they have some of the most innovative um, uh, regions and companies and um, economic zones uh, in, uh, in the world. You know, there are many Indian billionaires who are enormously successful, industrious people and so on. So actually, in many ways, 
um, India knows how to succeed because it has the examples of its own success. And much of what India needs to do is to spread the examples of its own success throughout its uh, throughout its population. But of course, fundamentally, um, I think one of the most important um, uh, policy uh, uh, changes of the Bush administration, uh, Bush 43 administration, yeah. was the declaration of India as a major non-NATO ally. That was a really important political right. gesture and strategic shift. Um, and uh, that needs to be uh, uh, realized in effect as well as um, in sort of political and diplomatic uh, uh, language in terms of cooperation and, and uh, capability development and so on. And then I think second, it's ensuring that as India develops, India has access to the global markets, to our markets, um, uh, and there's two-way access of that kind that yeah. really embeds the Indian economy in the, uh, uh, in, in the world uh, economy and, and, of course, in the democratic um, community uh, within that, of which India, India is already, um, as I say, the world's largest and, and, and obviously a leading member. So market access support for the trajectory India is already on. And India is uh, more than capable of uh, realizing uh, the ambitions we all have for that country. And, and, you know, I think India could be a model of how we get at some of these, you know, international global issues, especially the interconnected problems of, of climate change and food and water security, right? So I, I think that that, uh, that the, the US, the, the EU, the you know, UK, Japan, others should invest in India for all the reasons you mentioned, right? It already is a success. And, uh, and, and I think we, we need India to succeed for the world and to succeed in some geostrategic competitions as well, particularly with China. And, and so, Mark, I'd like to ask you more about this competition with China. The UK has taken a strong stance, I think, largely because of your efforts uh, you know, as you served uh, uh, you know, Prime Ministers May and, and Johnson. Um, you know, to, to ban Huawei, to take a stronger stance uh, in, in connection with China's various forms of economic aggression and now increasingly physical and cyber aggression. You know, what, what more can be done uh, to, to protect ourselves against, I think, what is a, a very, a very you know, increasingly hostile uh, China that is that's announcing, hey, listen, we're just going to take we're going to take hostages as a normal uh, element of our foreign policy. Uh, with the two Canadians, for example, the, uh, uh, the the two Michaels in in in, uh, in in China, you have you have the uh, you know the extension of the party's arm, uh, repressive arm into Hong Kong, and now the threats toward the UK uh, for the UK support uh, for 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 Hong Kong. Uh, there's you know, various new forms of economic warfare uh, that, that China has, has been pursuing. What 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 can, what can we do? What what do you think is the right approach from a a multinational perspective? I, think, I mean, in a sense, the simple answer is that authoritarian regimes respect strength. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to drift into conflict. In fact, the best way of avoiding conflict is that great phrase in the um, chambers in Venice, I think, uh, say, in time of peace, prepare for war. And uh, uh, authoritarian regimes respect strength. And what they have seen um, is that if they... Um, pursue these more aggressive and assertive policies, um, uh, actually, they, they have been uh, able to do so. Um, and so uh, uh, ensuring that the um, democratic community in the world, uh, which, after all, let's not forget, even the G7, 
just you know, the G7, the two big economic blocks of the US, the EU, and the three big independent advanced economies of Japan, the UK, and Canada, that's still over half the world economy. It's not over half the world population. It is over half the world economy. Add in a few others, like India, Korea, Australia, Malaysia, Indonesia, all democratic nations, all with many shared interests, whatever the difference is between us, and you're very quickly up to two-thirds or more um, of uh, the world economy. So we mustn't underestimate our strength here um, uh, uh, as long as we stand together. And that's the key point, is what are we going to um, uh, determine is a consistent and coherent policy among the democratic community in our dealings with China. Uh, we must not lurch between what one former minister in this country um, jokingly referred to as Project Kowtow, um, simply pursuing uh, the, the economic benefit of integration with China to the exclusion of everything else. But equally, the, the idea of trying to uh, suppress China's uh, uh, economic progress to decouple entirely from China is as unrealistic uh, uh, as that. And therefore, we need um, the democratic nations to agree a consistent and coherent policy. And as I said, I think that has elements, you know, uh, three elements to it. There are areas where we must stand together and be clear with China that their behavior is unacceptable. You know, we, if, if, they, if they seek to extend their uh, sovereign control into areas of the South China Sea that are legitimately either international waters or uh, the territory of other nations, we must stand together and um, uh, uh, prevent that. Um, uh, some of their human rights uh, record. You know, we don't have to buy goods from areas of China uh, where uh, we've seen these significant uh, human rights uh, violations. We must stand together um, against the theft of intellectual property and industrial espionage um, and the hostage taking and so on. And if we do that, and you know, as I said, they respect strength, then they will respond. We mustn't underestimate our strength where we're willing to do so. That does not mean that confrontation has to be the only solution to everything or that we uh, transmit to the Chinese government the sense that uh, because their political system is different to ours and their political traditions are different to ours, that we are determined upon a hostile relationship with them. This is a choice. They, if there's hostility, it must be a choice they make, not us. And there are areas where we should, we should and must cooperate with them. We have to over the big environmental challenges, otherwise climate change, biodiversity, health security, and these other things. As I said, we must show we're willing to compete um, in those areas uh, which, um, uh, in which China is seeking to extend their influence, you know, areas of Africa and so on, for example, where we've been absent for too long. And it's perfectly legitimate for them to extend their influence. Well, we need to be trying to extend our influence uh, as well. And they will respond to that if what they see is a consistent, coherent strength of purpose among a unified uh, group of democratic nations with the US in the lead uh, of that. And if that's steady and consistent, I think we can avoid this Thucydides trap issue and find a new equilibrium in the relationship with China. And I called it in a recent news article, uh, detente with Chinese characteristics. Well, Mark, I'm so glad you're, take, you're, you're taking this on. I mean, I think it's really important to correct this misunderstanding that you know this is a this is a choice between Washington and Beijing, and and maybe Europe could could pursue strategic autonomy and play play us off against one another. 
hey, when you look at what China's doing you know, internally with, with a, you know, a genocide in Xinjiang, a slow genocide in Xinjiang, and what they're doing externally, I mean, this is this is this is a choice not between Washington and Beijing, but, but between I think sovereignty and servitude. You know, and and I think the your, your voice and 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 uh, UK and European voices on this are so darn important these days. You know, you know, Mark, it's a it's a it's a period of time that we're in now where we're you know we are you know we are emerging from multiple traumas, right? A pandemic, a recession associated with the pandemic. I'm sure you're following what's happening here in the United States with you know the social divisions laid bare by George Floyd's murder last year and the and the and the uh, the violence and and protests that followed that, and then this crazy vitriolic partisan political season we've been through with the presidential election, the assault on the Capitol. And and many people I think are are eager to announce the demise of democracy, right? And and uh, and, and this competition that we're in with China, it's it really is a competition between a, an authoritarian model and, and and our democratic model of governance. What, what's your prognosis on on democracy broadly, and uh, and what more can we do, right, to strengthen our democratic institutions and and processes? Well, I think uh, we should always be aware of the external threats. Uh, we discussed earlier in the conversation the way that Russia in particular uh, has been seeking to uh, undermine our democratic uh, systems and so on. But in the end, I think, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm fundamentally an optimist. And I think the, the approach that uh, President Reagan took to the end of the Cold War um, is something from which we could learn. He invested in American success. He didn't simply allow... Um, this uh, the Cold War to be defined by a competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. He believed that the answer to that competition was for America to succeed and for the West to succeed and for the model, the democratic um, free market model to succeed. And, and so the first thing we should do in any competition of this kind is reinvest in our own system, have some belief in it and reinvest in it um, and not be mesmerized by uh, the competition from elsewhere. And for two reasons. One is it speaks to the human spirit. Um, you know, there aren't too many people um, in other countries looking for a green card to anywhere but Europe and the United Absolutely. States. And there are good reasons for that. <laughs> you know, these, are the, these are the places that people want to make their futures. They want their kids to be educated in you know, right throughout the world. And um, that's because there is something in the democratic system, the free market system that speaks to the human spirit. The other thing we, sh we should have some confidence in is if you prioritize control over freedom um, and control over economic growth, that is probably what you will get. I know we've seen spectacular economic success yeah. uh, in China, and it's lifted more people out of poverty uh, as a result in the last 40 years than we've ever seen in human history. You know, over 90% of the Chinese population were on less than, in constant prices, $2 a day in 1980, and in 2020, that's less than 1%. So it's an extraordinary economic transformation. But um, I, I don't think we should fall into the trap of thinking that because they've had some short-term success, an authoritarian system is destined to outpace a democratic system. Our predecessors often thought that about the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Look how that turned out. Um, actually, right. the biggest and best thing we can do is invest in our own systems and preserve the things that have made us um, successful and peaceful um, examples to uh, to uh, the world. And that means doing it together and restoring a sense of purpose among the West. Uh, but it does also mean just ensuring that 
uh, we we have some faith in our model. Well, Mark, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we, we certainly have work to do, but we, we need to be confident and we should, I think, almost consciously, you know, rebuild some of our, our confidence and, and, and recognize that we have these gifts, right? We do have a say in how we're governed. Uh, so, hey, I, it just, it, it, I'd like to ask you one last question. Uh, you know, you, you have, uh, you've been an architect, I think, of, 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 uh, of British foreign policy for, for many years, especially in the most recent years. And now in a post-Brexit world, you know, how do you see uh, British foreign policy? How do you see the, the U.S.-British relationship, the special relationship? Uh, what do you think are the biggest opportunities? And, and what's your vision for, for, the, for, for the United Kingdom's role in the world uh, after Brexit and how we can work together to advance our, our mutual interests? I think for the U.K., um, a global perspective is part of our national interest. I, I remember, I think, even joking with President Trump once that for us, global Britain was as much a definition of our national interest as he thought that America first was of the United States national interest. And that's partly because of our different, his, different history and perspective and model. The UK is the most open and, uh, and globalized economy and society um, uh, in, the G, in the G20. That's how we've prospered in the past. And I believe that's how we'll prosper in the future uh, post-Brexit. So that um, optimistic and global uh, perspective must be part of our um, uh, part of our future, whether it's whether one's looking at it through the economic lens or the or the political and uh, diplomatic lens. In terms of the US and UK, we're the biggest investors in each other's economies. We each employ um, millions of uh, each other's uh, citizens. Uh, London and the City of London and Wall Street are still the biggest financial uh, uh, markets uh, in the world, and of course. Um, we are the biggest um, defence partners within the North Atlantic Alliance. And the UK, although obviously much, much smaller than the United States, is the United States' um, most significant military uh, ally. And we, you know, as you and I have done, um, uh, will continue to serve together uh, around uh, the world as your, as your ally. Um, I think we can continue to play that role that we've played in the past of helping um, interpret um, the United States to our European partners and help interpret uh, Europe uh, into the United States. We are, after all, Europeans who speak English, so we have a, uh, a perspective that reaches into both. Even though we're now outside the EU, of course, we can't have the same influence within the EU we had before. But we can have uh, a great deal of influence as America's primary European ally over the EU. Um, and I think we can be probably a better partner for the United States as we shift our perspective to the Indo-Pacific um, in other parts of the world that, of course, are not only um, uh, right at the top of the American agenda. You, know, you live and work on the West Coast and people in, uh, uh, in Northern Europe often forget that uh, what, what we regard as East Asia, of course, is to your West. It's across the Pacific. And the West Coast of America has that, uh, has that orientation in a way that um, is quite different to the uh, uh, perspective that, that that we have here, but we will be present there with you and with our other partners uh, and allies. And that's not just because of uh, nostalgia and relationships we've had there for a long time. Um, most of the source of growth in, in the world is currently in the Pacific. It's not all in China. China is an important part of it, but it's in many other countries too. And it's important for the UK's future that we have the best economic connections uh, in, in that region uh, as well. So I think um, open, global perspective, big ally, robust ally of the United States, 
doubling down on our traditional relationships uh, wherever they are, building new ones, and remembering in the end that actually our greatest assets as a nation are the soft power assets um, of our uh, economic and uh, social model that, that people want to be educated here, they want to listen to the BBC, uh, they want to learn English at the British Council, um, and uh, uh, you know, they, they aspire to uh, the kind of lives that we've been fortunate enough through an accident of birth to have lived ourselves and for our kids to uh, enjoy as well. And you know, let's not forget our let's not forget our strengths. Let's not forget those priceless assets that we have as we shape the 21st century, just as we shape the 20th. Well, in in the midst of the uh, the Six Nations tournament as well, I think more Americans should be watching rugby union. Also, also, Mark. <laughs> well, the Six Nations is a, is an illustration. Uh, of how um, you know, the country with the largest population, certainly within the British Isles, um, and the deepest pockets in uh, that area of sport will sometimes find themselves on the wrong end um, of uh, teams that work, uh, have, have demonstrated at least this year, that uh, they, can, they work more effectively together on the field, they've been more agile in their tactics, um, and, uh, uh, and have pulled together. And so, you know, England have had gone down to a couple of defeats. Um, uh, and that's one of the great things about sport. It reminds you that in the end, as in every other area of human de- endeavor, um, it isn't played out on paper, it's played out on the field. Um, and uh, the team with fewer resources can uh, sometimes, if they're smarter uh, and more purposeful, um, uh, prevail. Absolutely. And, you know, I really look forward to seeing you in our post-pandemic world, maybe, maybe for a match at, at Twickenham. So, hey, Laura said, well, I, on, on an behalf invitation. Of, I look forward to it. <laughs> so good to see you. Hey, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, I want to thank you for helping us learn more uh, about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. Thanks for your tremendous service. Thanks for your friendship over the years. And, and thanks for joining me uh, for this episode of Battlegrounds. Well, HR, General McMaster, it's been a, a huge pleasure. Uh, and as always, a privilege to be with you. And I look forward to seeing you in person before too long. My very best to you and to the Hoover Institution. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content please visit hoover.org.